Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. On February 9, 1997, a frozen body was discovered by hunters in Karcher Springs State Natural Area, a nature reserve near Burlington, Wisconsin. The victim had been sexually assaulted and tortured before being smothered to death with a plastic bag. Investigators believe the victim was murdered elsewhere before being dumped at the nature reserve. Upon examination of the body, they found the killer had left a bite mark on the victim's neck and posed her body so that her arm was positioned so that the word hi that was written in black marker on her open palm could be seen. Found on her other arm was a $5 price sticker from a Golden Book store in Schaumburg, Illinois. With no way to identify her, she was buried as a Jane Doe at the Holy Family Catholic Cemetery. A year later, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted and caught the eye of a man who believed the victim was his daughter, Amber Gale Creek, who went by Amy. Amy had a history of running away, which led her family to wait five weeks before reporting her missing. In order to confirm that the victim was Amy, investigators had DNA and dental records compared against the Jane Doe. On June 26, 1998, the remains were officially identified as 14-year-old Amy's. Amy was born on July 2, 1982, in Park Ridge, Illinois. From a young age, while in her mother's care, she was sadly being sexually abused. However, by the time she was six years old, she was removed from her mother's care and given to her father, Robert Creek. After that, Amy lived a pretty normal life until late 1996, around the age of 14, when her father decided to turn her over to the state because he couldn't afford to pay the $50,000 private residential therapy cost. At that point, she began running away and using drugs and alcohol to numb her pain. People who knew Robert said he was a good man who was only doing what he thought was best for his daughter. However, he would come to regret his decision. They then began trying to find a foster family to take her in, but eventually ended up in the North Side Juvenile Facility in Chicago. On January 23, 1997, she ran away from the juvenile facility for the last time, and within two weeks, she would be dead. In February, Amy was seen leaving a party at a Motel 6 in Rolling Meadows, Illinois. Witnesses said she got into a luxury car with a sign that read, Mayor two men who attended the party were considered suspects at one point. They were known to be sketchy and had criminal records, but DNA eventually ruled them out. With investigators believing she may have just run away, they didn't initially add her information to the missing persons database. However, when they finally did, the details were wrong and the photo provided wasn't even Amy. They eventually released a composite sketch of a man that people saw Amy in town with. However, this never led to a suspect. Unfortunately, when leads dried up, the case went cold. 
Then, in October 2013, an Oklahoma crime lab began re-examining fingerprints taken from crime scenes of unsolved murders, and in February 2014, her case was reopened. The DNA from her crime scene was run once again through the database, and this time, they got a hit. The evidence linked to a 36-year-old bank worker by the name of James Paul Eaton, who was 19 years old at the time of Amy's murder. His DNA wasn't added to the database until 2000, when he was arrested on a drug-related charge. Investigators then located his apartment and began to follow him, hoping to obtain his DNA. They watched as he tossed a cigarette butt on the ground while waiting for a train at a local station, and from that, they were able to confirm the DNA was a match. The Oklahoma Crime Lab was also able to match his thumbprint to a print found at the scene. Eaton was then arrested and charged with Amy's murder. When he was 19, he lived in Palestine, Illinois, the same as Amy, and resembled one of the men she was last seen with. They were also hoping to get a confession from Eaton by showing him photos of Amy alive and dead, but they never did. Instead, he pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder and concealing a body. He then went on to reveal that he and Amy were supposedly involved in a sexual relationship. Eaton's trial was delayed until 2016 due to his defense team attempting to locate someone to examine the bite mark found on her neck. They also convinced the judge to remove the information obtained during the interrogation because investigators continued interrogating him even after he requested a lawyer. On October 25, 2016, Eaton pleaded no contest to a reduced charge of first-degree reckless homicide, and in January 2017, he was sentenced to 40 years behind bars. Investigators are still looking into the possibility that Eaton wasn't the only person involved in her death. Kimberly Starr Wren Cam was born in New Albany, Indiana on March 14, 1965. In May of 1989, she married David Cam, and the couple settled in Edwardsville, Indiana. David was a state trooper, while Kim was a stay-at-home mom. Within three years, David began having an affair with Stephanie McCarty, a young woman who worked at the Fitness Zone Health Club where he was a member. In 1993, during the birth of Kim and David's son Bradley, David and Stephanie remained very close. However, after Stephanie broke up with her boyfriend in the summer of 1994, David began taking her out to dinner and nightclubs, even to NASCAR races, while Kim stayed home with their infant son, believing her husband was working. When Kim announced she was pregnant again, Stephanie told David the relationship was over, but it didn't last, and soon, the lovebirds returned to sneaking around. This time, however, Kim began to suspect that David was cheating and questioned him about it. David then admitted to the affair and told Kim he wanted a divorce because he was in love with Stephanie. Kim wasn't happy, so she packed her things and went to her parents' home with Bradley. However, the next morning, she returned home and told David he needed to move out instead. He called his mother and asked if he could move into her home during the divorce, but she said no. At that point, he was so upset that he began destroying the kitchen. Hearing the commotion over the phone, his mother called for help from his fellow troopers, who helped keep the incident under wrap. After the marriage ended, David and Kim each got their own apartments, with Stephanie moving in with David. David's family was disgusted with him while remaining supportive of Kim. 
When Kim gave birth to David's daughter, Jill Kim, on February 28, 1995, her parents and in-laws were there, but David was not. The relationship between David and Stephanie would come to an end in March after Stephanie agreed to meet with her ex-boyfriend to discuss how they could continue to work together at the gym. Meanwhile, David had become outraged when the meeting went longer than he believed it should and called Stephanie, telling her to come home. When she arrived, he pulled his 9mm service revolver from his jacket and threatened to turn it on himself. At that point, Stephanie was done, so she gathered up her things and left. Within a few hours, David called Kim. He said he wanted to discuss getting back together as a family, and she agreed, still desiring to have her family together despite his betrayal. Their families were surprised Kim had so readily taken David back, but vowed to support her in her decision. They built their dream home on Lockhart Road in Georgetown, Indiana, and settled back in together. Kim loved their new home and felt that David was a changed man. However, it wasn't long before David was back to his old ways. In June 1997, David began having another affair with his old friend, Michelle Voiles, and their sexual encounters were generally in the back of his police cruiser. David then started pursuing Lisa Corfidge, a family friend and fiancé to a local firefighter. That relationship petered out after Lisa married Peter Carter. David kept pursuing women, even though a couple of them had rejected his advances, typically leaving him angry. Around this time, David's career was on the rocks after a 19-year-old claimed that he and two other troopers assaulted him during an arrest. While he was ultimately cleared of any wrongdoings, his superiors basically demoted him by reassigning him to casino duty at Caesars Riverboat Casino. In September 1999, David slept with the wife of a friend and former state trooper in the backseat of a car being driven by one of David's fellow troopers. Next, David tried to establish a relationship with 29-year-old Tammy Rogers, who was divorcing her husband. The two talked for several weeks, but then Tammy decided she no longer wanted a relationship with David and left him a message instructing him never to call her again. Realizing he would probably be forced into working at the riverboat permanently, David decided to quit and work full-time for his uncle in a sales position. He turned in his notice with the Indiana State Police, but still had three months left on his contract. During one of his last shifts as a trooper, David rescued Emily Shepard, an exotic dancer at P.T.'s show club in Louisville, Kentucky. She was parked on the side of the interstate because her car hood kept coming open and blocking her view. David fixed the problem for the dancer, invited her back to his patrol car, and soon began trying to seduce her. The two then began making out until David made a really strange comment. He said, I feel like I'm doing this with my daughter. While all this was going on, David's daughter, Jill, had started complaining of pain in her private areas and confided in her mother and grandmother. She had even been seen crying and complaining to people at her dance class. Kim had told her lifelong friend, Marcy McLeod, that history was repeating itself but didn't elaborate further. Instead, she made arrangements to take the kids out of school and travel to Florida where she planned to tell Marcy everything. Unfortunately, she would never get the chance. On the night of September 28, 2000, Kim arrived home at 7.35 p.m. after picking Bradley up from swim practice. 
Kim pulled her car into the garage, and before they could enter the house, someone opened fire on her and the children. Kim was shot first, then the killer turned to seven-year-old Bradley, who, having witnessed the attack on his mother, had unbuckled his seatbelt and was trying to escape into the rear storage area of the SUV when he was shot. After that, the killer shot five-year-old Jill. A couple of hours later, David arrived home from playing basketball with friends and family at the Georgetown Community Church and made the horrifying discovery. Upon finding his wife and kids deceased in the garage, he frantically called 911. Can I say, Police Radio, Patrice, can I help you? Patrice, it's Dave Cam. Let me talk to Postman right now. Okay, he's on another line. Right now, let me talk to Postman. Hold on. Get everybody out here to my house now. Okay, all right. My wife and my kids are dead. Get everybody out here to my house. Go to Dave Cam's house now. See where we're at. Okay, David, we're getting, we got people on the way, okay? Get everybody out here. Come here. We're, everything's going to be okay, all right? We're going to get Remember, people everything's out. not okay. Get everybody out here okay, now. They're coming. Go to Dave Cam's house now. Okay. Do you know what happened, David? No. They're dead. I just got home from playing basketball. 45, 48. Oh, my God. What am I going to do? David's former co-workers and other emergency personnel rushed to the scene, where they found a distraught David standing in the driveway. Since there were no attempts to enter the house, robbery was ruled out. Investigators determined that Kim and the children were the intended targets. The detective on the case quickly became suspicious of David after a mist of Jill's blood was found on his sweatshirt. David said that he thought Bradley was still alive, so he claimed he entered the passenger front of the Bronco, went through the two front bucket seats, grabbed his son, put him on the garage floor, and attempted CPR. To explain Jill's blood on his shirt, he said he had placed his left knee in the middle of the back seat, which caused Jill's head and body to slump forward and to the left, making contact with his shirt. Investigators also found it strange that Kim's shoes were on top of the Ford Bronco and couldn't understand why the killer would take the time to remove them. They concluded either Kim had driven home with her shoes off and had exited the vehicle and placed them on the roof, or this was a very personal act in the course of murder. Later found in the darkened garage was a gray sweatshirt bearing the name Backbone on the collar, which David denied having ever seen before. An Indiana State Police lab analyst later found unidentified female DNA on the front of the shirt. In a private lab hired by David's defense attorney, Mike McDaniel, found unidentified male DNA in the collar. The blood and DNA of Kim Cam had also been discovered on that same sweatshirt. The next day, an autopsy revealed that little Jill had recently been forcibly held down and sexually abused within 24 hours of her death. Between when investigators suggested David was responsible for the abuse, his family came to his defense, especially his sister, Julie Cam, who said she didn't believe the detective's narrative. Two days later, David called former co-worker and friend Shelley Romero, threatening to take his own life. Ironically, this day was also the day David's former mistress, Stephanie, was getting married. After learning she was engaged, David called Stephanie to congratulate her on her upcoming nuptials. Detectives were well aware of David's numerous affairs, and those would soon become part of the investigation. They also discovered that the couple's life insurance policies had recently been increased. David was then asked to submit his DNA 
To which he responded, If that expert puts me in jail, I'm going to come back and kill you too. The expert was the head of the forensics department who noticed a mop bucket at the scene with a strong odor of bleach. The biggest issue with the case was that 11 witnesses claimed he was playing basketball at the time of the murders. Even so, investigators still believed he was responsible. I profile this case because of, obviously, as you know, well, no writer, we're doing this all by the numbers. People heard something they thought was unusual. When we talked to them, they said, sounded like gunfire. The time was when you were already home, which was around 9.20, shortly thereafter. And this is just max. I'm just telling you what we, you know. It's wrong. It's wrong. These people making up this time. I'm telling you, people are confused. The time element is all. It's not right. It's not right. It's not right. It's not right, guys. You're not right. You're wrong. You're wrong, wrong, wrong. The, uh, you're wrong, Errol. You're wrong. It's not right. You're getting off the track. Something's not right here. Now fix it. Blood on your shirt. And they'll have a DNA analyzed. This is the presumptive test that it is high-velocity blood spatter. It's scientific documentation. The only way that comes on is from low back, or blow out from a gunshot wound. That is supposed to be on my t-shirt that I play ball in. It's on, yeah. It's wrong, Daryl. Dave, guys. what do we do when they tell us that? Now we gotta figure better, out why. Better find another expert. This man, and he's he's very, um, well, he's renowned as far as his expertise. This is not something he just started to do yesterday. The t-shirt that I had on was what I had on. That's what I wore over, and that's what I wore on. And any blood it's got on it now came from either an impression of something I leaned on in the car, or it came off of Brad himself. Tried to clean this up. Tried to clean some of the blood up no, or something like that. No, no, no. This is ridiculous. What about some bleach, Dave? No. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I didn't clean up. Somebody may have. But it wasn't me. That person is your suspect. He was molested. It happened that day. That night. That's when it happened. And it wasn't by me. You guys are wrong here. You're wrong, Mickey. I did not do this. I did not do this. I don't know. That's why I called you guys. That's what your job, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're looking so hard at me. We look at everybody, babe, but honestly. But Mickey, you're so off base. You're so wrong. You're so wrong. Three days after the murders, David was arrested and charged with the murders. Despite the prosecution's strong evidence against him, David's defense team felt their client's 11 alibis would be enough for an acquittal. Prosecutors, however, were prepared to argue David had slipped out of the basketball game unnoticed, returned to his home, made a phone call, and then killed his wife and children. However, the defense proved that his phone records were an hour ahead of the actual time the call was made. Regardless, the prosecution pressed forward, believing they had the right man. 
After nine weeks of testimony and 29 hours of grueling deliberations, the jury returned a guilty verdict on all three counts of murder, and David was sentenced to 195 years in prison. Then, on August 10, 2004, the Indiana Court of Appeals reversed David's convictions because his extramarital affairs should have never been allowed as evidence. Before an official date could be set for David's second trial, Charles D. Boney was arrested after DNA from the Backbone sweatshirt resulted in a hit from the CODIS DNA database. At first, Boney denied any knowledge of the murders, but after a few hours of interrogation, he finally admitted he had met David during a basketball game in June 2000. It was in the middle of a crime scene of a triple homicide. Somehow that sweatshirt got there, your sweatshirt. You explain to me how it got there. I have no idea. It shows up at a crime scene, not laundered, not washed. If it went through the Salvation Army Dropbox, that would have been a clean sweatshirt. Your DNA, chances are, probably wouldn't have been on there. But it is. I see where you're coming from. You know David Kim? No. You ever met David Kim? No. Do you remember the murder of David Kim's family? On television, yes. Do you know where David Kim lives? Only on television. Make no mistake about it. If anything, else link you to it you're done stick a fork in you and see that would normally worry me i wasn't there after they had gotten to know each other david became aware of his criminal past and asked him if he could get him a clean gun boney said he was inside the cam home on the night of the murders he said when david went into the garage and shot his wife and children boney said he rushed outside which is how his fingerprints were left on kim's suv he said he was also responsible for taking Kim's shoes off and placing them on top of the vehicle. After some digging, investigators learned Boney had been arrested in 1989 for attacking several young women for the sole purpose of stealing their shoes. But Boney claimed they were just fraternity pranks and nothing more. David and his family thought Boney's arrest would finally clear his name and he would be a free man again. However, after Boney's arrest, prosecutors dropped the charges of murder against David and refiled them with an additional charge of conspiracy. In 2006, Boney was convicted on three counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to 225 years in prison. Later that year, David was again found guilty of the murders of his wife and children and conspiracy and sentenced to life in prison without parole. On June 26, 2009, the Indiana Supreme Court again overturned David's conviction, saying prosecutors should have never allowed testimony regarding David allegedly molesting his daughter without evidence to back up the claims. Additionally, the justices said the testimony of one of Kim's friends, who said Kim was expecting David home between 7 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., was hearsay and should not have been permitted in testimony. In November 2011, the Indiana Court of Appeals ordered Prosecutor Keith Henderson to recuse himself from David's third trial, expecting to begin in August 2013. With the inability to use David's extramarital affairs or testimony about the suspected identity of Jill's abuser, it made a conviction seem impossible. Nonetheless, 
prosecutors moved forward with a new trial. This time, they would claim David's motive was life insurance proceeds. Although the Kim's life insurance policy increases were most certainly suspect, in the end, it wasn't enough to convince a jury that David was guilty and he was subsequently acquitted of all charges. Since 2013, David has been trying to rebuild his life. Today, he works as a case coordinator for Investigating Innocence, a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending American inmates who feel they have been wrongfully convicted. Recently, he won a $4.6 million settlement after spending 13 years in prison for a crime he was ultimately acquitted of. These people were, they were family. Brothers, sisters, I loved them. Would have done anything for them. And the one moment in my life where I needed somebody to do something for me, yeah, they turned their backs on me. Meanwhile, Charles Boney remains behind bars, serving his 225-year sentence, but continues to maintain his innocence. He says he's a changed man and a born-again Christian and continues to claim that David was involved in the murders. However, the blood spatter on David's shirt was re-examined by an expert who determined the blood spatter was not consistent with a blowback from a firearm and instead was consistent with the account given by David himself. It's now been 18 years since the murders, and Boney's story has changed at least five times. What do y'all think about David's acquittal? Let me know in the comments below. Marlene May Warren was born on April 15, 1950, in Mount Clemens, Michigan. Marlene was described as very charismatic and a great mother to her two kids, Joe and Johnny. At the age of 40, she lived in the luxurious Wellington Aero Club in Wellington, Palm Beach County, Florida, with her second husband, Michael Warren, who went by Mike. The neighborhood had its own landing strip and taxiways leading to each home. Mike owned a used car dealership named Bargain Motors, and Marlene managed their rental properties. Sadly, in the fall of 1988, Marlene lost her son, John, to a tragic car accident when he was only 22 years old. At some point, Mike began having an affair with Sheila Keene, who helped him repossess cars for his dealership. His employees said that the two often took long lunch breaks together, and he was paying her apartment rent. In May 1990, Marlene and her 12-year-old son Joe were eating breakfast with several of his friends when a Chrysler LeBaron pulled into Marlene's driveway and a clown emerged from the white convertible. The clown was dressed in an orange wig with a red bulb nose and a painted-on smile and was carrying a bouquet of flowers and two balloons. One balloon reportedly bore a picture of Snow White and the other was emblazoned with the words, You're the greatest. The clown knocked on the door and offered the flowers and balloons to Marlene, then pulled out a gun and shot her in the face. The clown then calmly walked back to the Chrysler convertible. Two days later, Marlene sadly died from her injuries. Hours after the killing, workers at a costume shop called the police and said a woman had bought a clown costume two days earlier and picked Sheila out of a photo lineup. They also discovered that the silver balloon that read, You're the Greatest, was sold at a public supermarket near her home. Employees told detectives a woman who looked like Sheila had bought the balloons an hour before the shooting. 
The convertible was located four days later in a Winn-Dixie parking lot and had numerous orange hair-like fibers, likely from the clown wig and brown human hair inside. Come to find out, the white Chrysler convertible had been reported stolen from Michael Warren's car lot a month before the shooting. At this point, Mike and Sheila became primary suspects in the case. They searched Sheila's apartment and discovered orange fibers on clothing inside that resembled fibers from a clown wig. During questioning, Mike provided an alibi, saying he was on his way to a Miami racetrack with friends at the time of the shooting and denied having any involvement. Unfortunately, since investigators didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest, the case went cold. Two years later, in 1992, Mike was sentenced to over three years in prison on 43 counts of odometer tampering, grand theft, and racketeering. Ten years later, in 2000, relatives of Marlene told the Palm Beach Post that Marlene was aware of the affair and wanted a divorce. However, she was scared because the car lot and other properties were in her name, and she feared Mike might do something to her during the divorce. She even told her mother, if anything happens to me, Mike has done it. In 2014, Marlene's case was reopened, and investigators began re-interviewing key witnesses. They quickly learned that 12 years after Marlene's murder in 2002, Mike married Sheila in Vegas and moved to Abington, Virginia. They then opened a restaurant called Purple Cow across the border in Tennessee. The hair that was found in the car in 1990 was finally sent off for advanced DNA testing and linked right back to Sheila. In 2017, she was arrested at her home in Virginia and charged with Marlene's murder. Prosecutors in Florida were seeking the death penalty, but also offered her a plea deal of 12 years, with credit for five and a half years she had already served while waiting for trial. After numerous delays due to COVID-19, Sheila changed her plea from not guilty to guilty and took the plea deal. However, her defense attorneys said she was innocent and felt forced to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty if found guilty in a jury trial. Her lawyer is expecting her to be released in early 2024 because of Florida's gain time law, which entails that while current law requires people to serve at least 85% of their sentence before gain time can build up, Sheila is exempt because of the sentencing laws in 1990 when the crime was committed. There is a bit of a twist in the case. An inmate by the name of Edward Baer boasted to his cellmate that Michael hired him to carry out the murder because Marlene wanted a divorce, and he didn't want her to get the car dealership. However, in September 2022, Edward denied telling an inmate that he murdered Marlene. Since Michael had an alibi, investigators could never prove he knew about Sheila's plan to murder Marlene, and as of 2023, he remains a free man. Sereno Foster Jr. was born on February 16, 2002. At the age of 18, Sereno lived in Avondale, Ohio, and had recently graduated with honors from DePaul Christo Ray High School. He was a rising basketball star and had recently obtained numerous scholarships, with Xavier University offering him $100,000. On top of playing basketball, he planned to study nursing. On December 12, 2020, Sereno was convinced by a friend on Snapchat to meet him in the 3600 block of Canyon Drive in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
while Sereno sat in his new car that he got for his 18th birthday, waiting for the friend from Snapchat, someone came up and tragically shot him to death. Twelve hours later, police found his body inside his still-running car. A little over two years later, detectives determined that Eric Johnson Jr. was the person from Snapchat who convinced him to meet up and was also the person who shot him. However, Johnson was aware that authorities were closing in on him and decided to continue his reign of terror. In early 2023, 19-year-old Johnson shot his mother, 38-year-old Darlene Flores, and younger brother, 16-year-old Rodrigo Johnson, before turning the gun on himself. A handwritten note left by Johnson confirmed he did indeed kill Sereno and pointed to jealousy as the motive. He apparently felt that Sereno was standing in his way of success and decided to get rid of him. Two men who said they were best friends with Johnson said they received a call from him at around 5 a.m. saying he loved them and was sorry. His friends said Johnson was mourning the death of his six-year-old sister, Lila Johnson, who was murdered by his father, Eric Johnson Sr., after a custody dispute. Just like Johnson, his father took his own life after the murder. William C. Blodgett Jr. was born on July 10, 1939, and went by Bill. At the age of 69, he lived alone in Roswell, New Mexico. On January 3, 2009, Bill's son, Greg, called the police to alert them that no one had seen or heard from his father since December 23, 2008. Bill and his wife had divorced two years earlier, and his adult children lived in Maine and Maryland, which led to his disappearance going unnoticed for 11 days. Initially, investigators could not find any clues as to what happened to Bill or where he could be. Bill had agreed to feed his neighbor's dogs, and there were no signs he had been there. They also found his car still at home. When they spoke with Bill's girlfriend, Mona Nichols, she said that Bill had been involved in a dispute with his tenant, Tony, over the theft of a wallet. However, investigators could not locate Tony and never found any evidence of a dispute. Eventually, the case went cold. Fourteen years later, in 2020, the case was blown wide open after a man called the police to confess to the crime. That man was Tony Peralta, and he had borrowed a phone from a person outside a convenience store in Albuquerque to make the call to the police. After Peralta confessed, he hung up and waited for authorities to arrive. When investigators finally showed up, they found Peralta sitting on the curb waiting for them. At that point, he told them the victim was Bill and gave the address of the murder, East 5th Street in Roswell. Authorities initially believed the confession was a prank. However, after Peralta directed them to the property he once shared with Bill, who was still missing, they decided to obtain a search warrant. Peralta then told them where to find Bill's body, and sure enough, when the police removed a plywood floor, they discovered Bill's remains, which consisted of bones, a boot, and a set of dentures. Apparently, Peralta murdered Bill with a screwdriver while high on methamphetamine and then hid the body before fleeing. When asked why he was confessing to a murder he had effectively got away with, Peralta said he could no longer live with what he had done and that his head hurts. He said Bill was a good man who had helped him and he regretted murdering him. 
While Peralta confessed he didn't agree with the first-degree murder charges and pleaded not guilty, he is currently in jail awaiting trial. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.